Hey guys, my name's Emmy. I felt like for this I probably should have grown like a really awesome beard or worn really chunky sneakers. <laughs> Either of the two to make you guys feel more comfortable, but I'm here. Like Josh kind of gave me an intro. He gave a sermon seminar uh, I think two months back now, and this is kind of the sermon that came out of it. And it was 20 minutes, so don't worry. I'm not about that 40-minute sermon life, Josh. <laughs> He's been doing them really long lately, but don't worry. I'll get you out of here quickly. Um, but more on like a broad term of why I'm here, why I'm at the Restoration Project. I just graduated from SES as a senior, and I had gone to private school my entire life since second grade. And so I thought I had the Bible on lockdown, and I thought I knew everything. And private school functions a little differently than public school, if you guys don't know. Uh, I think a prime example of this is like how we define cool kids. A perfect example of this is in elementary school. Uh, we have to memorize Bible verses every week. Quizzes are on Fridays, but we have a chapel every single Thursday. And so at the end of chapel, each class stands up and they recite their verses together. So naturally, if you were a cool kid, you would not have it memorized until the next day. So you would stand up there and completely mumble the entire thing. And, and every now and then, like, mumble to your best friend. You're like, we don't know this at all. And, like, that made you cool <laughs> in elementary school. I don't really know how they did it in public schools. But so, uh, like I said, I, I had memorized the verses every single week. I had... Read, read the right books, done the right reports to get me by. I'd gone up in the right chapels and said the right prayers. And so I thought I had this all figured out until I, my junior year, Josh came to our school and he kind of turned the Bible upside down. And <laughs> he has a way of doing that. He'll just show us a verse, something that we've heard our entire lives. And you'd be like, no, this is actually how you read it when you put it in the proper context and stuff like that. And so I think that's really when, like, my true, like, curiosity and love for what the Bible actually had to say came into my life. Because I had never known these things before, even though I'd been going to a private school my entire life. So when I put this on the screen, nobody freak out. The parable of the mustard seed. We've all heard it, <laughs> and we've all heard it since we were young, and so I know it is trite, it is overused, and that is exactly why I picked it, because there's so much more in this verse that we don't know about, and that we've just kind of glanced over at first glance, and so that's why I kind of want to go back through and maybe breathe some new life into it. Um, for my introduction, I kind of have like a stereotypical of what we've been taught about it. It says, mustard seeds are the smallest seeds I've ever seen. A mustard seed is so small that if you were holding one in your hand and dropped it on the ground, you might not be able to find it. Even though the mustard seed is one of the smallest of all seeds, yet when it is planted in the ground, it grows into a plant so large that birds can come and plant in its branches uh, and can even build their nests in it. Jesus started the growing the kingdom of God with a handful of disciples. Every follower of Jesus is part of the kingdom, and that makes you and I part of God's kingdom. Each time we tell someone about Jesus, we are helping grow the kingdom. And that's just kind of like what we've all been told, what we've been taught. And so we kind of just leave it there and go with it. What I'm trying to get with this is not that these things are wrong. I think there's something absolutely beautiful, how God can take something small and grow it into something large. But what I'm saying is in this text, there's more that sometimes gets left out. And so I think we should go back through and try to relook at it again. So just to look at the verse, um, I'm going out of the one in Matthew 
uh, Matthew 13, 31, 32. And this is kind of, um, Jesus has already done the Sermon on the Mount. He's just kind of with people, kind of preaching about what the kingdom of God is like. And this is kind of thrown in the middle of a bunch of his um, parables. And so it says, he told him in another parable, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it was the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it, it's the gar- it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds can come and perch in its branches. And I'm going to try to focus on two main things in this text that I think we've overlooked. The first thing being a little bit more about the mustard seed, about what it meant in its context, and a little bit more about who the kingdom of God is for. So let's start with the mustard seed. There's a nice little picture of one. Uh, I, when I was giving this um, to the other guys, I was saying, like, I don't know, like, if this picture is trying to be sub, like, subliminal, like, saying a mustard seed is kind of like marriage because there's a wedding band and there's really <laughs> nothing else in the picture. I just like it because it gives you, like, a good little reference of what a mustard seed is, just so you guys can see it. And we've all heard the mustard seed talked about before. It's small, but grows into something large. <laughs> and it even says in the verse, Though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of all garden plants and becomes a tree. And that's just kind of like where we've left it and said, that's really all you need to know about the mustard seed. It's small. If we were in the context there, there would be more to it. And so I think we had to go back in time and look to see what the mustard seed really meant to them. And in order to do that, we had to throw in some more context. In ancient Roman culture, a mustard seed was not simply just a small seed. Here's a little quote by Pliny the Elder. He's a first century Roman naturalist. And it says, Mustard was so poignant a flavor that it burns like fire, though at the same time it is remarkably wholesome for the body. This last, though, it will grow without cultivation, is considerably removed by being transplanted, though on the other hand, it is extremely difficult to rid the soil of it once it is sown there. And another um, quote by more of a modern guy, John Crossan. He says, the mustard seed, therefore, is as domesticated in the garden, dangerous, and as wild in the grain fields, deadly. What these guys are pretty much trying to say together is that the mustard seed was a weed. It was not a good thing back in that time. They would do everything they could to actually keep it out of their garden. And so the point of using the mustard seed in this analogy is not to emphasize its small roots or how small it is when it goes into the ground, but it's to emphasize the potential takeover the seed has and its tendency to get out of control and to take over a garden. So they would do everything to keep it out of their gardens. When Jesus is showing up and saying the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, it would almost be as if he was showing up today and being like the kingdom of God is like a dandelion. Like, you know those things in your front lawn that you absolutely hate and you cannot seem to get rid of, like, that's what my kingdom of God is like. It, it would just, like, play with the people's minds. They'd be like, what is this guy talking about? He's saying that the kingdom of God is explosive. It's uncontrollable. It's unexpected. It's unpredictable. And it's like a weed. Once it gets going, it's impossible to stop. So naturally, if you were to say this in our context, the people listening to it would be absolutely have no idea what he's talking about. He has gone out on a limb here and kind of saying that the kingdom of God is like a seed, it's, it's kind of hard to understand. And so just the sheer matter that Jesus is using a mustard seed as his example, he's already captured the audience's attention. Um, in this first part, Jesus is pulling from the audience's context, but next he's going to pull from something a little closer to home, something that would sure to bring some controversy. So the second, second thing that we're going to kind of concentrate on is the birds. 
And this it comes into play in the verse 32 when it says, Those the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of all garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come in pertinent branches. And the word here being used for bird is patena in the original Greek. And patena is defined as any kind of bird, wild or domestic. And I think when, I'm when I was preparing for the sermon, this is a little bit where I lost Josh, because <laughs> he has um, a Bible program on his computer that you can put in a Greek word, and it'll tell you everywhere it occurs in the New Testament. And so I was like, I need you to look up this word for me. And he was like, okay. And I told him what the word is, and he was just looked at me. He was like, bird? Like, where are you going with that? And I was like, don't worry. I'm going somewhere with this. So <laughs> don't worry. I'm going somewhere. It's not just a random word. <laughs> um, to really understand like what this word is doing inside this context, I think we really have to understand the two classifications of birds that um, the Greek uses. And so to look at this, we're going to look at birds in the Old Testament. And I think they're really nicely demonstrated in Leviticus 11, 13, and 14, and Deuteronomy 14, 11. And Leviticus, it says, These birds are detestable to you. You may never eat them. The griffin vulture, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, and any kind of black kite. And in Deuteronomy, it says, You may eat any clean bird. And so the word being used in Leviticus is patena, and the word being used in Deuteronomy is orneon. They're both defined as any kind of bird, but they have different connotations. Um, it's almost as if the patena is classified as the detestable birds and the orneon is classified as the clean birds. So it's almost in our context, it's in like the patena would be the sparrows, the vultures, and the orneon would be like a chicken or a turkey or something that's clean to eat that we would consider acceptable. And so when Jesus is using these words, he's definitely playing off of what the audience knows, because they would be extremely familiar with this. Um, a little quote from Cameron Freeman. Rules about what was pure and unpure, especially laws concerning clean and unclean foods, which is what we're dealing with here, work to define and differentiate one religious denomination from another. Furthermore, rules about what foods were considered clean and unclean were for a Jew a matter of covenant loyalty and national identity. So what he's saying here is, they would have been so familiar with these two words and so familiar with which one was which because it was really like their religion. It's what defined them. Everyone listening to Jesus would have known these laws because it's what's defined them. It's what they live by on a day-to-day -day basis. They knew that this was how they had to live their life. And I think to understand really what that meant to them, we have to understand a little bit more about Leviticus. Leviticus consisted of a major source of Jewish law. In fact, it is the closest book to being fully devoted from commandments from God. The people of the time were very devoted to the law and looked at it as in which their way to access God. So they would follow these strict rules almost to a point that it was outrageous in order because that's how they accessed God, that's how they obeyed God. And so we see Jesus play off this multiple times in Leviticus 19 and Matthew 5. It says, anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same way, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury may suffer um, the same injury. And in Matthew 5, Jesus comes along and says, You have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. So it's, he's coming back and kind of taking what they had already known and kind of throwing it out the window and saying, Yeah, I know you've heard this, but this is how it actually is. And we see him do it again in Leviticus 19. 
and Matthew 5. It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against someone among you. And over here it says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of Father in heaven. So we see him doing the same thing. We see him taking something in Leviticus and kind of turning it upside down because they had become indoctrinated with what was in Leviticus and almost living their complete lives blindly and the commandments. And so we see him taking it and kind of throwing it aside multiple times. Jesus is being really deliberate with his words when he's speaking. He's using patena instead of orneon. It's almost as if he's saying that the kingdom of God is for the patena, the griffin vulture, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, and the red kite. And it's almost as if um, he's saying that the kingdom of God is for the patena, the unclean, and the detestable. And so almost as if by saying this, Jesus is making the patena into the horneon, the griffin vulture, the bearded vulture, the black kite, and the red kite. He's making them clean, or he's making the unclean clean. To understand the patena, they're classified as detestable, and we see in our day-to-day lives that we are the detestable ones, and the ones that Jesus is talking about in this verse, we, we prove on a daily basis that we're not clean, where we mess up daily, and so by saying here that the kingdom of God is for the patena, he's saying it's for the sinners, he's for the flawed, it's for the people who are not worthy of what Um, Jesus has to offer, and yet he's saying, this is exactly who I'm here for. I'm here for people like you. So going back to the verse, except I'm going to vamp it up a little. He told them in another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, an explosive, uncontrollable, unpredictable weed that cannot be stopped once it starts to grow, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows... It is the largest of garden plants that becomes a tree so that the birds, the ones who are detestable, unwanted by the world, and worthy in the eyes of God, come and perch in his branches. This is how Jesus described the kingdom of heaven. He, cho- he was very deliberate with his words, very deliberate with his parables about how he chose to describe what he was trying to do here on earth, and this was one of them. And how much of that is truly reflected in how we live our lives today Are we truly explosive, uncontrollable, unpredictable, and unstoppable? And even on the other side of that, are we cleansed? Are we renewed? Are we redeemed? And are we the buzzword restored? And even kind of taking that one step farther, are we nesting the detestable, the patena? Or are we simply even just understanding God's redemption? I saw this quote a few weeks back. It says, what makes the gospel offensive isn't who it casts out, but who it lets in. I think we've kind of taken what Jesus has done here on earth and kind of reduced it into this one thing. Josh gave a sermon uh, probably a year, about a year ago now, maybe more than that, about diversity. And he said, I like to hang out with the people who look like me, who talk like me, who eat the same food as I do, who wear the same shoes that I do, and who listens to the same music. I think we've kind of taken the gospel and shoved it into this little box and said, this is who it's worthy for, and this is who I'm going to give it to. And Jesus is saying just the opposite in this parable. He's saying it's for the detestable, the people who we consider to be completely unworthy of what he's saying. And so we kind of need to reevaluate what we're doing. Are we really truly nesting the detestable? Are we 
going out of our way, not going out of our way, but even just understanding God's redemption. Are we cleansed and are we renewed and are we restored? And if we truly are, then why aren't we living explosively and uncontrollably like the parable says we should be?